The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. When Noelle Johnson arrived in the desert, she killed every plant she owned. She fancied herself a green thumb, but she wasn't from around here in the desert. She was determined to succeed and earned her BS degree in urban horticulture from Arizona State University. For a few years, she dodged golf balls from the tees and fairways while designing and caring for the plants around the golf course, which included hundreds of trees, perennials, and yes, even cactus. Noelle is a horticulturalist, landscape consultant, garden instructor, author, and a popular speaker who lives and gardens in the Phoenix, Arizona area. She is now known as the AZ Plant Lady. Noel teaches and inspires desert dwellers of the many opportunities for creating and maintaining a beautiful outdoor space that thrives in a hot, dry climate in her new book, Dry Climate Gardening. This is episode 97, Dry Climate Gardening, with Noel Johnson on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Noel, I think I would be lost if I had to be transplanted into a desert garden. What is the first thing I should realize when arriving in a dry, arid region? There are many possibilities as to what you can do in a garden in the desert. However, I remember feeling lost when I first moved to the desert. The two things we need to keep in mind is water is everything. You will likely have to provide supplemental water to have a garden. The second is the intensity of the sun. Just because a plant label may say full sun, that does not necessarily mean it can handle the full sun in the desert. I've heard you say, explore to what is possible where you live. What did you mean by that? Many people believe that the desert is a very limiting area and that all we can grow are cactus and rocks. There is nothing further from the truth. We are a very rich agricultural region. The nation's lettuce crop comes from Arizona throughout the wintertime. We have apple trees, peach, plum, lots of citrus. We can have vegetable gardens 12 months out of the year, and we can grow beautiful, ornamental, lush green flowering plants that are drought tolerant, in addition to all the cool cacti and succulents that also do well here. When I visit a new client's garden site, my first evaluation is to where does the water come from and where does it leave the site? What are your first thoughts when checking out a new client's garden space? I first look at what might be struggling because plants do and can struggle here if they are not cared for properly. Oftentimes that is, believe it or not, getting too much water. People think that because we're a desert, we need to water our plants all the time. In many cases, they're doing too much. So I see lots of incidences of overwatering or shallow watering, which is interesting because we have salty soils. The water that we get has salts in it. Sometimes you will see plants that have a little white powdery substance around the top of the soil. That's from shallow watering. Those are things that we look at right away. In many cases, I am working with clients who are new to the region and want to get their heads around what can they accomplish in the garden, how to maintain the plants that they have the right way. So it's listening to what their desires are, what are their frustrations. Oftentimes, they may have me there thinking that it's just going to be about design and encouraging them to implement certain types of plants. 
but the, the sessions also become an important lesson in how to care for their plants the right way. And in many cases, they're doing too much to the detriment of their plants. One thing you said there, there's salt in the soil, salt in the water, and that kind of gives me a new perspective. When I see a plant that says salt tolerant, I thought that applied to the ocean. Something that would also designate in your area where salt are present? We don't have huge amounts of salt. The issue is with the shallow watering, the water doesn't permeate very deeply. And then because of the strength of the sun and the aridity, it evaporates very quickly. So it leaves behind salts. As long as plants are watered deeply, we really don't have an issue with the salts. Many of the plants that are grown in more of the southern regions of the country, such as Georgia, where you can grow lantanas and things like that in warmer climates, or monkey grass and things, we can grow those here absolutely fine with supplemental water, and you don't see salt damage as long as you are watering. What is another thing that comes obvious when you go on a site in your area? We have an epidemic in this area with people, we call it poodle pruning. They take these beautiful flowering shrubs and they turn them into balls, squares, cupcake shapes. The imagination is the limit. And they strip these beautiful shrubs down into just green blobs. It's a widespread practice with landscapers. Homeowners do it themselves because they don't realize the beauty of the shrubs that are there naturally. They just have green, ugly shapes as opposed to a beautiful shrub in a lovely, natural shape filled with flowers. That's a big one. That's so pervasive. It's one of the first lessons I talk to people about. It is fun to show them photos of what the plants should look like compared to not, how they can save money, especially if they hire a landscape service. They don't need someone to come every month to take care of that and to do this. With landscape companies, they take great pride And they're very good at what we call mow, blow, and go. They'll mow your grass, they'll blow out the leaves, and they'll leave. They want to keep things neat and tidy, and they're very good at that. Gardens aren't necessarily meant to be neat and tidy places. There's always an education process when I'm talking to people, and that's usually a really big one. Another is talking to them about plants that do best. So if I see plants that are struggling... It's usually because it's in the wrong exposure. Either it's in full sun and it's not meant to handle the full sun in the desert, or it's in a really shaded area and it needs sun to look its best. That's part of the process is looking at what plants they have that are struggling, which ones should go, which ones still have ornamental value, but maybe we need to change how it's being maintained, and then filling in the blanks. How do we help them achieve their goal of creating a beautiful outdoor space and matching their style with plants that are going to do well in that area? Tell us a really good garden tip for the desert. One thing that is really fun for dry climate gardens is to use rock as a design feature. (laughs) And that surprises people, but we do. We use it efficiently and it can be quite beautiful. In the landscape, you can use a larger rock if you're creating contouring in swales or if you're creating kind of a dry riverbed, adding a larger size rock, whether it's river rock or some other type of landscape rock can be a really beautiful appearance. You could add plants alongside the dry riverbeds. Also, we like to decorate, we call them boulders, but they're just really big rocks. They're you know two or three feet in width. That adds a lot of texture and height, and you don't have to water a rock, and you don't have to prune it. But if you add plants around it, it's a really beautiful look. What's another must-know for desert gardening? understanding that a plant that has a label that says full sun doesn't necessarily mean it can handle the desert full sun. So we have another type of exposure to keep in mind, and it's called reflected heat. So oftentimes you will see a plant referred to as if it's in a nursery in the desert, it might say full sun, but it may also say reflected heat. Those are plants that are suitable for areas that are up against walls near a sidewalk or near a driveway where the heat from the sun is reflected back onto the plants. 
For example, if you have a wall that faces west, meaning it gets hot afternoon sun, I call that the wall of death because the poor plant's getting all that intense desert sun in the afternoon, but it's also getting beat up on the other side. There are plants that can handle that and beautiful plants that can handle that, but you want to make sure that it says reflected sun on there. One thing that I've always heard about is that the desert, the southwest that you live in, has five seasons. I only thought there were four seasons. Tell us about how you come up with five. We do have five seasons. We have winter, like everybody else, and most many of the areas in the desert, we will get, we can get cold. We can get into the 20s and 30s at night. We have spring. Sometimes spring is a little shorter than we would like, (laughs) but the spring is the most floriferous season. You're going to get the most blooming plants. We have fall, and fall is what we call our second spring because that's when we do a lot of our planting. Because planting in fall is going to allow your plants three seasons to establish a good root system before the next summer arrives. And that's really key to success. But we have two summers. We have what we call a dry summer and we have a wet summer. Our dry summer season is typically May and June. It's the most stressful time for plants because the humidity is in single digits in many cases, and it's, it's hot and triple digits start to show up during that time. Then once we hit July, August, and September, we have what we call our wet or monsoon summer. And that's when the humidity goes up, not as high as in the Southeast or other places, but you know, it can get into the thirties and forties. We get monsoonal rain and usually these storms show up in the afternoon and the evening. We can get torrential rainfall for short periods of time, but it is definitely a wetter time of year for us. And the plants are very happy. What kind of insect and fungal pressures do you have in the Southwest with it being such a dry climate? That's a blessing. We have a lot less than other areas. I have toured gardens throughout the country. My daughter lives in Michigan, and I help her with her garden quite a bit. I will see bugs in her garden. I have no idea what they are because we don't have them. We don't have that many. We do not have the Japanese beetle. There are many other insects we don't have because the hot and the aridity keep a lot of that away. It doesn't mean that we can't get new insect pests. But the biggest ones that we typically deal with are spider mites in the summer because spider mites like hot, dry conditions and we get that. Spider mites are probably the biggest pest in the summertime. And we also have a pest that affects agaves, which are these big, beautiful uh, rosette-shaped succulents. An agave snout weevil is a little beetle that lays her eggs at the base. And they basically, the larvae eat the agave from the inside out. You don't know that you even have it until your agave like flops and collapses. So those are two that we deal with quite a bit. We'll get aphids in the springtime, but that's not a huge, big problem either. And fungal diseases, very, very little. You will see some black spot on roses, not a lot. Sometimes get a little powdery mildew, maybe a little in the vegetable garden, maybe a little on roses, but again, it's not a big problem. Are you in the monarch migration path? We do get monarchs. We don't get large numbers of monarchs, but we do get them. But an interesting thing about butterflies, I actually teach classes on butterfly gardening, but monarchs in Arizona, they do migrate. Some of them go to Mexico and some of them go to coastal California because coastal California is another destination for monarch butterflies. Most people don't know that. The majority go to Mexico for most of the country, but Western states, a lot of those monarchs you will find in California along the coast. I do see monarchs, but they're not as prevalent as other types of butterflies that we get here. We do get quite a few. We have a very large diversity of butterflies. It's always exciting to see the monarchs. I'm wondering about what are the differences from the Northwest or from the Midwest or something like that. I would think that the soils would be different. I would think maybe fertilization is maybe handled different. How does that handle? It's interesting. <laughs> the soils in the Southwest can either be very sandy. You'll usually see that in the desert regions of California. It's just sand. 
Where I am in Arizona, most of our soil is clay, which surprises people. Yeah, we have a lot of different soil textures. We deal with soil texture issues the same way as you would anywhere else, which is if it's slow-draining, heavy clay soil, we'll amend planting holes with compost to help improve the texture. With sandy soil, you would add compost to help increase fertility and the water holding capabilities. When it comes to mulch, we can use organic mulches, and we usually use those around plants such as roses, fruit trees, vegetable gardens, things like that. This is something that really strikes people as different as we use landscape rock as a mulch for large areas. Unlike many parts of the country where you have very dense plantings and then usually a lawn or grass, here we don't do dense planting very often. We have spacing in between plants. That's something people find at the beginning a little jarring, a little different. One of the neat aspects of gardening in the desert in the Southwest is we can grow plants with really cool, interesting shapes. And those are best appreciated when there's a little empty space in between. That's what you'll see in the landscape. Things are covered with rock mulch. You can get different sizes. You can get different colors. I usually recommend that you go with a rock mulch that is more of a natural color that the plants get to shine. Plants that are farther apart, instead of lots of lawns, there are lawns here too, but in many areas, instead of lawns, you'll just have um, rock mulch in there. The rock mulch is typically what I think of when I think of a desert landscape. It surprises me that you're not massing plants together. Is that just purely an aesthetic or is, is that for health of the plant too? It's for the aesthetic in many cases, and it's also due to water. More plants you have together uses more water. That plays into that. That's why we don't have the total mass plantings close together. Now, in some areas we do in the landscape. You can group a bunch of ground covers together or you'll have shrubs planted up against a home or a wall or staggered. But then you'll have empty space in between the groupings of plants. So that's something that is a bit different. I think it's due to water and using it the most effectively that we can. One issue is that up to 70% of a household water use goes to the outside. That's a lot. It's really especially important that we choose plants that are going to look good, but beware of overplanting. I do think that empty space also has to do with the Southwest aesthetic. Do you use gray water, recycled water, or is it all just fresh? It's becoming more popular, but it's not widespread. I do suspect, though, that especially in recent months, with the news really talking about the precariousness of the water supply from the Colorado River, which can consist of really anywhere from 30 to 50% of a city's water supply, people are starting to look into alternatives such as gray water. And a lot of the municipalities and golf courses will use treated wastewater to water the plants. Everything is guided by water use, I would think, then. Is that the bottom line on gardening in the desert? It has to be with the water use. And I'll, I'll tell a little story. Last week, my husband was buying a truck. There's lots of trucks in the Southwest, by the way. It's a pickup truck place. We were at the dealership, and the dealer had moved here three years ago from Ohio. And he loves living here. In Ohio, he had a big, beautiful vegetable garden. He tried to grow one here, and he did all the things. He got the raised bed. He did everything the same as he did back home. The calendar was a little different. He planted a little earlier here, but he told me that hardly anything came up. And I asked him, how often were you watering your plants, your vegetables? He said, well, the same frequency I did in Ohio. And I said, well, that's why you only had one little plant try to come up out of all the things he planted. I said, you need to water more often here. It's dry. When it gets hot, things dry out even faster and plants lose water faster. So yes, it all comes down to the watering. It's the number one factor. So it wasn't getting enough moisture in the soil to germinate. That was it. And so I set him right. I gave him a basic 
irrigation schedule for his vegetables, and I made him promise to contact me and tell me how it went. Did you sign him up for your online course? <laughs> yes, I said, you know, you could sign up. It's all in there. Since I mentioned that, why don't you go ahead? You've got a course that folks can take online that you teach, Desert Gardening 101. It is. It's my master class, and it arose from a time about three years ago when I was burning the candle at both ends, helping consulting with them, homeowners, how to create, grow, and maintain a garden that thrives in the desert. There was just one of me. It was very hard to meet all of the demand, and my family was tired of not seeing me. My husband cooking dinner all the time usually consists of it coming out of a box or a microwave. So it wasn't a good way for me to live. I was interested when I heard that you could create class online that's available to people, and not just people in my service area, but people throughout the desert Southwest, teaching them what they needed to know about gardening in the desert. I've sold over a thousand classes since then because the need is so great. Actually has had me do a couple of different smaller classes. So I have a pruning class. I have also a new class on growing roses in the desert because I hear a lot of people who move here, they love roses and they want to grow them, but they think they can't do it in the desert. That's when I just love to dispel the myths. And I will say, you know, the desert's a great place to grow roses. And rose growers actually grow lots of their roses in the desert and then dig them up and package them up and sell them across the country. Because we have a nice arid climate, we have less disease, fewer bugs to deal with. I love helping people realize all that's possible here. And I get to do it online too, as well as in person. It seems that every region experiences drought or a weather pattern that shifts back and forth from year to year. What can we learn from dry climate gardening in the desert that we can apply to these other areas where we're experiencing drought? We may have periods of drought and then periods where maybe we've got a good amount of rainfall and the drought disappears, but guaranteed it's going to come back. Drought shows up in places that's very surprising. Luckily, there are many things that you can do no matter where you live or what type of garden that you have. Here are a couple of things. We want to work on doing things such as adding native plants, plants that are native to your region, because that means that they are more adapted to the rainfall that you receive. You could also go outside of the native plant palette and look for plants that come from regions similar to yours. Those are ones that have similar temperatures and similar amounts of rainfall. Those are going to be your most fuss-free types of plants and do well with the amount of water that you receive. Other things you can do are things such as contouring your landscape. You can create low areas or swales in your landscape that collect water. You have water instead of running down into the street if you had a nice swale or lower area, you can collect that water and the plants nearby can also take up that water. You may also be overwatering your plants, especially if you provide supplemental water to plants. A really good way to tell how often to water your plants is to stop watering, but look at your plants every day. If you start to see signs of wilting, a little bit of signs of water stress, then you know that, okay, I need to water them. And then you're going to set your schedule so that they're watered a couple of days before you saw the wilting. That's a good way to really tailor it exactly to your particular yard, your garden. Watering frequency is going to change seasonally. You're going to need to water more in the summer than you are other times of year. Here's one that people really don't think about. If you allow plants like shrubs or ground covers to grow to their natural size, you're going to save water. If you do excessive pruning to your plants, if you prune them too often, that causes them to grow back faster and they need to use more water to grow back the foliage that was lost to the pruning. If you also allow plants to grow to their natural size, they shade more of the ground, which also means less water lost. 
So those are some really neat tips that you could use anywhere. And the last one is we want to water in the morning. Don't want to have your sprinklers going off in the middle of the afternoon because a lot of that water is lost immediately to evaporation. Water early in the morning. Does the desert ever have a wet period? We have two. Yeah, we have a rainy season in the winter, and we also get monsoons. That's summer rains. So we're very fortunate. Two separate rainy seasons. It's fun. Monsoon season, we have water that comes up from the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of California. And we have about three months of summer rain. We've talked about separating plants and more individualized plants in the desert landscape. But is there another design principle that would be different in the dry regions than what would be in the the non-dry regions? There is. We want to use water the most efficient way that we can. Most people have drip irrigation, which is a main pipe that runs under the ground. Then little quarter inch in diameter tubing comes up above the ground. You have little drip emitters that slowly drips water to your plants. That allows the water to permeate deeply without waste. But we need to group plants by type when it comes to the amount of irrigation they get. You can have separate irrigation lines going to the different types of plants, meaning with trees, they don't need water as frequently as other plants. So they would have their own separate irrigation line and separate schedule. Shrubs, ground covers, and vines need water at roughly the same frequency, so those are connected to different line. Then you can tailor it even further. Most cacti are fine without supplemental irrigation, except if there's sometimes a drought, you might need to do a little bit of hand watering. If you have a landscape full of a lot of succulent plants, they don't need water very often, but they do need some. So that's an invitation to add another irrigation line for them as well. If you'd like to do specialty gardens, such as fruit trees, vegetables, or if you love to grow flowering annuals, those are invitations to have a separate line just for those. That's the most efficient way to use your water, and your plants are also the healthiest. Because if you only have a single irrigation line, you can only have one schedule. By default, that has to be scheduled for the plants that need the most frequent water. A lot of the plant selections that you use in the desert, you've covered in your new book, Dry Climate Gardening. I have. I love color. I love color in my garden, and usually that's in the form of flowers. In my book... We cover all types of plants, trees, shrubs, ground covers, cacti and succulents, ornamental grasses, and some palms as well, because the book is meant to be a resource for people to use to create whatever style garden they are looking for, and to know that they are not limited in the least when it comes to achieving a certain look or style, because we've got plants that are going to do well in a hot, dry climate. What would be a couple of different styles? I do have several landscape designs in there. One that I created is called the Color Garden. It's filled with plants that no matter what time of year, you're going to have something blooming and providing a lot of beautiful color. Deals with overlapping bloom seasons. There's another example of a garden in there, which is one of a garden that really has a lot of curb appeal, but it also has water saving features implemented in it as well. One of my favorite designs in the book is a small space pollinator garden. I included a design for people who have a smaller garden space, used plants that attract pollinators because we have a lot of them here. It's just a really fun way to reimagine what the garden is. And there is a really fun low maintenance garden, but that's full of a lot of design and texture. Lots of different styles. That was fun to do. Your book does a real good job of what you call a resilient garden. Tell us about what a resilient garden is and how do you accomplish making your garden resilient? A resilient garden is one that can handle extremes better than one that needs a lot of maintenance or fussing over. A resilient garden is one that is better adapted to the climatic conditions. We have a warming climate wherever you look. We're having to deal with that. In my book, 
which is geared towards dry climates in the West and the Southwest, but a lot of these lessons can be used elsewhere. I get into talking about choosing the right types of plants and looking at features. What are features of plants that are going to do well in a dry climate? These are plants that usually have a smaller leaf. Usually the leaves have a grayish cast to them because that makes them more drought hardy. I also talk about plants not to plant, not to add, plants that are going to struggle more. Those are ones that are from climates where they need a constant amount of moisture and would struggle in an arid climate with the dryness. Whatever plant we decide to add, we want to do all that we can to make them successful. Part of that is ensuring that they're planted in the right exposure. And a lot of times people don't give much thought to what exposure a plant needs. In my book, I have a lot of fun getting really into the different types of exposure from deep, deep shade to bright shade to sun to reflected sun. And reflected sun is something that we deal a lot with here. And it's the urban heat island effect where your walls and sidewalks and driveways, they absorb heat and they intensify the heat because they reflect it right back on your plants. You need to choose the right plants that can handle that type of climatic condition. In a region that gets a lot of rain, you would be choosing a plant that can do well with being soaked periodically from time to time. In the book, I talk about unique challenges in the Southwest. Those are things such as dealing with caliche, which is a buildup of calcium carbonate, which is just a really rock-hard layer in the soil. If you have that, talk about how can you plant and deal with that. We also discuss how to deal with javelina. We call them wild pigs. They're not pigs, but they look like a pig. They look like a brown, hairy pig, and they love to eat plants. I like to talk about plants resistant to javelina, deer, and rabbits. A good part of the book is about how to care for plants the right way in arid zones. As you might imagine, it's how not to overprune plants. It's how to prune them correctly and when to do that. Because gardening and having a beautiful outdoor space shouldn't be a big chore. It should be something that you enjoy, not something that frustrates you, and not something that you are wasting a lot of time on maintenance that's not needed. I think my favorite chapter is the dry climate garden design, what plant goes where, and how to create a really beautiful outdoor space with the book, what's fun with the plant list is I've listed specific plants in the design, but they're very easy to switch out and switch in something different so you can really personalize your outdoor space. My book is filled with 200 photos to show you the beauty and what is absolutely possible in the dry climate garden. So it's meant to inspire, but equip you with what you need to know to create, grow, and maintain a beautiful outdoor space. I know you get to see a lot of gardens and you help a lot of people. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or a landscape? (laughs) This is a great question. I love it. Keep in mind your climate and your site conditions. What type of soil do you have? Is it sandy? Is it a clay soil? We need to understand what kind of soil we have and work with that. Also, what I'm speaking to is here we live in a desert. However, if you live in the Northwest, you know you're going to deal with a garden that's wet for a good part of the year and dry during most of the summer. So we need to keep in mind the climate conditions. We need to find plants that are suited for those instead of using plants that we just like the look of that really aren't tailored for your climate. And you're going to create a whole lot of work for yourself, nursing those plants along and usually with some really disappointing results. For example, I have a lot of clients who love gardenias. Gardenias are beautiful. I I get it. And they're so fragrant. Gardenias like acidic soils. We have alkaline soil here and our water is even alkaline. If you're going to grow a gardenia, you're going to have to do it in a pot and you're going to constantly have to fertilize it with a fertilizer for acid-loving plants. Even then, it's never going to look as good as it does growing somewhere like the Southeast where it would do much better. Stop trying to fight the climate. Stop trying to fight what's easier to do with plants that just are not well-suited. Another is over-maintaining plants. 
Many times people fertilize plants that don't need it. If you have native plants or plants come from regions similar to yours, in many cases, you may not need to fertilize them. We have a lot of plants here in the Southwest that fertilize themselves. Sadly, the nursery's not always going to tell you that or the landscaper because they want to sell you a product. It's important to do some research on your own. If a plant looks great, don't add fertilizer. It's doing fine without it. Another thing we do is the overpruning, which I spoke about earlier. When we overprune, for example, flowering shrubs, it just makes the plant look ugly, but it also takes away a food source for pollinators. You're seeing declining numbers when it comes to bees and butterflies. Allowing your plants to grow out and flower really helps with that as well. That's another thing I think people would love to see do different is the idea that a garden has to be neat and clean. You got your leaf blower, you're going to clean up all those leaves. Well, those leaves are nature's fertilizer. They're nature's mulch. Instead of blowing and discarding every single leaf, well, perhaps blow them underneath a shrub or save those leaves to use around your vegetable garden. Consider that. It doesn't have to be this neat, pristine place because in many cases it's not as healthy. And then... <laughs> The other thing I'd like to tell people is don't freak out if you see bugs on your plants. I have lots of clients who get very worried when they see a couple of little bugs on their plants. Plants are made to withstand a certain amount of insect pests because they're natural. They're part of nature. Don't freak out if you just see a few damaging bugs. Chances are there'll be some good bugs that'll come in and eat those pretty soon. Only worry if you see a big issue. Great. That's a good list. <laughs> What's a garden myth you'd like to smash today? <laughs> I've said it before and I'm going to say it again, is that desert gardens are brown, filled with cactus, and ugly. Because nothing can be further from the truth. Yes, you will see some gardens like that because people just haven't tried or they don't care. But my favorite type of garden and one that I want people to know that you can have is one filled with beautiful flowering plants intermixed with cacti and succulents. In my personal garden, that's what you'll see. I have beautiful flowering vines, flowering shrubs, flowering trees. I have cactus and I have other wonderful succulents that do beautifully. Beauty is attainable and it doesn't have to be high maintenance. What is your earliest garden memory? I grew up in Los Angeles. I didn't move to the desert till I was married. So I've been in the desert now for 37 years. <laughs> my earliest memory was the roses that my dad grew in our garden. It was always fun to cut a rose and take it to my teacher. When my husband and I bought our first home in Phoenix, I wanted roses. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. At the end... I had 40 different rose bushes, and they brought me so much joy. That's what inspired me to really get into gardening. It was my love affair with roses. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture landscape profession? Because there was a lack of resources for the Southwest Desert Gardener. Most of what was available at the time, and I'm dating myself, the internet wasn't there yet, <laughs> All the garden information were books that dealt with gardening in the Midwest, Southeast or the Midwest or the Northwest. It ignored this whole swath of area. And people are surprised when I tell them that Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the country. It's growing and we've got Tucson and we've got New Mexico and Las Vegas and we've got a good chunk of Southern California. There was not accurate information for how to garden the right way here because I made a lot of mistakes because there was nothing or no one there to tell me how to do it right. So that's what inspired me to go back and get my degree at Arizona State University. That's just been my passion is to teach people what's possible and how to achieve it. Well, with these years in gardening, dealing with a lot of situations, surely you've got a funny garden story that you can tell us. <laughs> I do. I had... A client, he was actually a professor, not in gardening, not in plants. <laughs> and he and his wife had paid to have someone come in and redo their backyard. They had done a nice job. 
they had an area of grass and then all around the periphery of outer walls, they had shrubs. The plant choices were good, but they had me over because they wanted advice and how to take care of everything. We are on one side of the garden and we had talked about things there and he says, Noel, I have this plant and it's just bothering me because it's just not flowering. It's not doing what it's supposed to. He pointed to this plant across the yard. From looking at it far away, I had no idea what it was. And that doesn't make me look very good or my expertise look very good when I don't recognize it. So we start to walk closer and I'm trying to figure out what is this plant and how can I help him without looking stupid? We got nearer and nearer to the plant. And he had put in a wooden stake, and the plant was about four feet tall. He had put green nursery tape around it, too, to kind of keep it in a shrub form, because it was a very floppy plant. He said, Noel, this is the plant, and it just doesn't look the way it's supposed to. And then he said, by now I knew what it was. And then he says, and at the bottom, there's this little plant, this weed that just keeps trying to grow into it. Well, this plant that he had roughly tied up and staked was actually um, spurge. It was a weed. It was a huge weed. He thought it was the real plant. So he was trying to nurse this weed along, and it was massive. Didn't flower because this weed didn't flower. Little weed at the base that he kept trying to pull out was the actual plant that was trying to grow the whole time. He had a really good laugh over it. He was very good-natured about it. He allowed me to take pictures (laughs) (laughs) So I've been able to share that story from time to time. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, in your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Early in my career, I had the fortunate experience of working with Carl Johnson. He has since passed away, but he was a world-renowned landscape architect, and he was a professor also at the University of Michigan. He had a winter home here in the desert. I was brought in to work on a redesign outside of a golf course country club. We've got a lot of golf courses here. (laughs) We were working on the redesign, and he was a resident of this golf course community. He volunteered to come alongside and help me with it. Although I had designed classes as part of my college degree program, it didn't compare to all that he shared with me and taught me about landscape design. And we went on to work on several other projects together and he was in an advisory capacity and we became really good friends. And here was a a man in his eighties and I was in my thirties, but we just formed this really lovely, wonderful relationship. And I love it. Do you remember something that he taught you? Yes, I do. Okay. So when you are landscaping along a road, that people drive on. You want to increase the amount of distance between plants. You don't want to plant them close together because it's just a blur. If you plant them farther apart because people are traveling at a decent rate of speed, the distances between plants is actually less. So if you're designing along a roadway that people are driving by, more space is more advantageous. You save money too and maintenance. (laughs) Little plants will get lost unless you mass them together to kind of form the impression of one big mass planting. But I think in those cases, trees and large shrubs work best and just let them grow full size and spacing's okay. Well, with the, the increased spacing too, it just makes everything easier. What's your most valuable garden mistake? <laughs> Not growing appropriate plants. And that was one I made early after I moved here. And we had our house in Phoenix. I fancied myself a budding gardener and I was going to have all sorts of success. But you see, I came from a climate in coastal Southern California where it's a Mediterranean climate. It's very easy to grow things there. Not so much in the desert. (laughs) I ordered plants that had no business growing here. I, I, I went and used online catalogs from companies in the Northeast and the Midwest. They didn't offer plants that did well here. I learned that USDA planting zones are very helpful when it comes to the minimum cold temperature things can handle, but it has nothing to do with how hot a plant can tolerate. So I live in zone nine. Plants that can grow in zone nine, for example, in the Northwest or Northwestern California on the coast, 
have no chance of growing in my garden. It was a very important lesson because all those plants I bought died. Every single one died. I was very disheartened at the time, but it was a valuable experience. Did you have visions of growing things that nobody else was growing in your area and you're going to introduce them to these wonderful plants? I did. You know what? I still feel that way because of what I do is I am often sent plants for free, which is so great, to (laughs) trial them here in the desert. So I get kind of the new stuff out there. So it might be a plant that people have used for a long time, but all of a sudden they have one that blooms in a different color. Oh, that's so much fun. There's also a number of plants which do really well, but the nurseries just don't sell them. Nurseries and garden centers and big box stores, they sometimes, mostly the big box stores, tend to just have a very limited plant palette. They just sell a certain number of plants in terms of variety. I like to work with independent or local nurseries because they're going to have more different stuff out there. I always like to be a little different. I want people to look, oh, what's that? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I like to be that person. I care more about what's going on outside my garden than in my house. I'm not so much about the design trends in my house, but I sure am outside. What have you learned recently about horticulture or gardening? I think that we do have garden trends that come and go. Oftentimes, they're related to world events. For example, during COVID, we weren't going anywhere. People were spending a lot of time in their gardens. And all of a sudden, everybody was really, they started focusing on their garden. They decided to upgrade it or create more neat space where they can spend time. So I got really busy. And that was about the time my online class came out, which was good because I wasn't meeting face-to-face, wasn't always feasible. COVID, people being at home, the interest in outdoor spaces just went through the roof. Also, back when we had the big recession, people got into vegetable gardening. Everybody was growing their own vegetables. That was exciting. Everybody all of a sudden wanted to grow their own food. Recently, now with water shortages and drought, people are even more interested in saving water. So we're starting to see thirsty lawns being ripped out, particularly non-functional lawns. Non-functional lawn is one that doesn't really have a purpose other than a decorative. If you have a front yard and you've got a lawn out there, chances are your kids aren't playing on it. Pets, they're not on it. A functional lawn tends to be more in the backyard. So people are looking to get rid of the non-functional lawns the ones that are purely decorative and introducing things such as lush green ground covers that use a whole lot less water, that, but they give you that same look, that same design intent. Would you complete this statement? In my garden, I have... I have lots of different plants. <laughs> I have apple trees. I have peach trees. I have a lemon and an orange tree. I have desert willows, which are these beautiful trees. They're deciduous, but all summer long, they have beautiful pink blooms. I have Palo Verde trees, which have beautiful green trunks and branches. They hovered in masses of golden yellow flowers in springtime. I love flowering shrubs. They cover all my walls. I have blooms in purples and pinks and magenta and yellow. I have hummingbirds all over my garden, 12 months out of the year. Flowering ground covers. I have cacti. I have some columnar cacti. I also have other types of cacti that grow about two feet tall, but several times in the spring and summer, they produced these beautiful, colorful flowers that are six inches wide. They're stunning. And so it's just my happy place. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're going to apply this year? Well, I want to get rid of what's not working well. So a couple of years ago, we renovated the backyard. I had some ground covers, which looked good two seasons out of the year, but then looked horrible in the summer and the winter. I don't want to put up with that. I don't want to put up with plants that look awful part of the year. One of the advantages of living where I do is garden grows all year long. So we can always have something that looks good all year. So I ripped them all out (laughs) and I went with something that had a similar look. It was a white flowering ground cover and it was something with a similar look, but hoping this one does better because looking good just part of the year is not enough. It's got to be a year-round performer at your house. 
What are your future plans for your garden? I have started to get rid of some plants that also, they, although they look great, they are either messy or a lot of work. I have a large bougainvillea shrub, and that is my tropical shrub. It does beautifully here, and it loves the heat. We get beautiful magenta blooms nine months out of the year, but it's very thorny, and it's quite messy. After 22 years, I think I've just had about enough. <laughs> so I'm getting rid of it and putting in something different that will flower, but not as messy. And, you know, because of that, I want to encourage people, gardens aren't meant to be static and unchanging. Don't be afraid to change things up. If something's not working or something you're tired of spending time on or you're tired of the mess, don't be afraid to pull it out. So many people are afraid to pull out plants because they think they're killing them. And well, yes, you might be killing them. Or you can relocate it to a different area or give it away to somebody. The plants around your home, their job is to make your house look good and bring you joy. If they're not doing that, life is too short. Get rid of it and add something else that will. Do you have a plant that you're in love with this week? Yes, it's my pink trumpet vine. It can't decide whether it wants to be a shrub or a vine. It's a shrubby vine. Beautiful lush green foliage and large pink tubular flowers. Blooms spring and fall, but if winters are mild, they'll bloom through the winter. Right now it's blooming, but we had a freeze last night, so I'm not sure it's still going to be blooming for much longer. <laughs> Noelle, tell us how people might connect with you. They can find me on my website, azplantlady.com. I am also on Facebook at azplantlady. And you can find me on Instagram at az.plant.lady. This has been Episode 97, Dry Climate Gardening with Noelle Johnson on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Noelle. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.